these are the things that weren't originally uh, apparent to me when I first started. But realizing that on this one block, Buster filmed eight different movies, you know, it, it tells you something about his about how he made his movies, his working methods. And that's just some just something we, we didn't know before. Out of the silver shadows and into the Klieg lights of Movieland comes Nitrateville Radio. This is Michael Gebert in Chicago with Nitrateville Radio, the podcast that talks to people doing cool stuff in the world of classic era films. Brought to you by Nitrateville.com, the discussion site about movies from the classic age from all around the world. There's a certain alley just off Cahuenga in Los Angeles. And if you stand there, you're standing in the steps of Charlie Chaplin, Buster Keaton, Lois Weber, and many more. In this episode, I talk to John Bengtson, author of books on how L.A.'s geography shaped the great silent comedies. And I talk with vintage jazz musician Vince Giordano, who remembers his friend, Ron Hutchinson, rescuer of early talkies with the Vitaphone Project. Don't get caught at the corner of boredom and nothing to listen to. Subscribe to Nitrateville Radio at iTunes, Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, or Stitcher. And if you have a chance, leave us a rating and a review at iTunes to help others discover us too. Now if my big red streetcar would just show up so I can get to the studio on time for the show... When Al Jolson first told audiences that they ain't heard nothing yet, he did so by a process called Vitaphone, which combined picture from 35mm film with sound from a 16-inch disc, disc sound being clearer and of higher quality than competing sound on film systems in those first few years of sound. What that means for us 90-some years later is that the challenge of preserving early talkies is twice as hard as saving silent films, because there are films where we have the film reels but no audio, and films where we have the discs but no images. Finding both halves, and thus preserving Vitaphone's priceless record of musical and vaudeville acts, is the work of the Vitaphone Project, which has rescued literally hundreds of these early talking shorts and features. The Vitaphone Project was led by Ron Hutchinson, who participated at Nitrateville.com under the name of, what else, Vitaphone. I always figured I would talk to him about it on this podcast one of these days. But sadly, Ron Hutchinson died unexpectedly in early February, so we'll never have that chance. I asked one of his co-founders, Vince Giordano, who leads the Jazz Age revival band Vince Giordano and the Nighthawks, to tell us about the Vitaphone Project's work, and about Ron Hutchinson's contributions to saving this piece of our film heritage. 
Well, I've been interested in old music ever since I was a kid. I'm 66 years old and uh, started listening to old phonograph records, the Victrola. And uh, when I was a kid, uh, I'd sneak down and watch uh, early musicals, you know, from the early 30s at 2, 3 o'clock in the morning and much to my parents' uh, dismay because I had school the next day. And so I was always looking into the past and seeing what I could find and listen to the, the great music, the great actors, the singers, the vaudevillians. It, those people and that music spoke to me, not the contemporary music of my time. So um, I was playing with my band in a, in a place in New Jersey, and this fellow came up to me and says, wow, this is really great. I love this music. Uh, it goes along with uh, what I love and, uh, and, and these old films. And that turned out to be Ron Hutchinson. And uh, we became fast friends, just went on and on in, in, in talking about uh, who we could find and uh, what films the, should be restored. And, uh, um, and he was a, quite often a frequent visitor where I play with my band in New York. And so uh, I, w I would say I got involved with this music about 60 years ago in the films, too. <laughs> So when did this become a practical consideration? I guess there, there were five of you who started the Vitaphone project. Um, had you had contact with archives or been collecting the discs or anything like that? No, that was that was pretty much Ron's um, uh, expertise, and uh, he you know he, he held a lot of positions in other jobs, you know, regular jobs as 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 a managerial type person, and he had a a real great way of um, organizing uh, materials and whether it's lists and, 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 and matrix numbers and, and things like that. And uh, also going after uh, uh, the private sector and, and getting people to contribute to uh, getting these things restored, like putting down some money and then also con convincing uh, the companies, the parent companies who held these things, that it would be great to put these things out. Why wait another 90 years? You know, we're we're going to really be so far away. Let's make some money and have some fun listening and watching these great films. Um, one of the uh, things that I did was uh, I took a job, uh, oh, I guess in the late 90s, working for a record company. It was called BMG, Bertelsmann. It's a German company. And they took over the Victor uh, files. And RCA Victor, or then the Victor Talking Machine Company, did a lot of discs uh, for uh, Warner Brothers, the Vitaphone Disc, and MGM, and Universal. And um, I was uh, what we call the mole, so to speak, in the try to, to see if the, if the archives had any of these discs because this would be really in, important and i did a lot of digging on my off time of course i had to do a regular job for them and i found the the unfortunate uh inter-office memo that uh stated this is about 1942 or 43 that uh, victor uh contacted all the studios that they had made these 16-inch 
discs for. And they bought them back uh, for a fee, and then that they scrapped these these discs for the war effort. So the the Victor files had no 16-inch discs. They were all gone. So that was one unfortunate uh, thing that I discovered. And so then we knew that we really had to contact collectors and look at old movie theaters and uh, and see who had items out there. Well, you also had to find a way to play them, I suppose. Were there many uh, Vitaphone players out there? No, there, there weren't. Uh, but uh, the radio industry... Uh, used 16-inch discs later on in in uh, the 30s and 40s and 50s, and so there were turntables that had uh, long 16-inch arms that you were able to play these discs with. And quite a few of the uh, people who were into 78 uh, and other forms of restoration, they have these uh, phonographs with long arms on them, so you can play a disc like that. Okay. Uh, well, yeah, tell me about some of the early um, discoveries and some of the, the films that got put together, just how that worked. Ron was voracious as far as getting just people on the Internet or uh, who had you know, written uh, that they had a family member that was in Vitaphone, or um, uh, he had a friend whose name escapes me right now, and uh, was was a uh, a real uh, detective as far as finding uh, people who own theaters, and um, uh, so the main thing was to try to to see what was out there. And uh, uh, there's a network of collectors that um, some of them uh, would come forward with uh, the materials that they had, and some were reclusive; they didn't want to be bothered. You know, they uh, they just had their materials and so we we kind of you know all try to convince these people to get these things out and uh, some were successful and some not it was it was a lot of digging and a lot of luck um you know the uh, jolson film the plantation act that was considered lost and i don't know if you know the story about this ron finally tracked down someone that had the disc and uh, the, the soundtrack disc for this. This is from 1926 before the jazz singer. And um, the disc had been broken and glued together, but not in a, a professional way. So Ron had a lot of experience with people using uh, a lot of the new technology and, 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 and love <laughs> for this. And so they carefully re-glued this disc so okay that was gone and then we got it declicked because every time the needle would go over where that crack was you know you hear that 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 click that 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 click you know and so you can take those clicks out they went to the library of congress and uh there inside the can of film for the jazz singer somebody put the plantation act in there they said, "Well, it's you know, it's Jolson, it's Jolson film." Like, but wait a minute, that's a different film. So, you know, they must have wondered, like, what's this silent film of Jolson? You know, 
doing in with the jazz singer. There's no music. There's no dialogue. There's, you could see him singing and dancing. So that was the great discovery, that there was the film, and now we had the disc, and it's time to put this together. And I was at the um, preview of this in New York at the Film Forum, and it was electrifying. I mean, people were applauding after each Jolson number. And Jolson from the screen would say, no, no, no oh, oh, just wait a minute, wait wait a minute. Wait. Like how he, it was just a very surreal moment, let me say that. Um, that's just one experience. Another wonderful thing that uh, I was helpful in doing, Ron had found um, the son of someone that worked at the Vitaphone Studios here in Brooklyn. I live in Brooklyn, right one block away from where the, a lot of the Vitaphone shorts were made here in New York. So the fellow lived up in Connecticut, and Ron was busy with his work, and I drove up there, and it was a giant scrapbook that contained the construction of this new studio, you know, from, from the beams and the blueprints and things like that to a lot of uh, pictures of uh, the staff of, of the Vitaphone uh, production team and, uh, and some stills from... Uh, some of the uh, uh, films that were done there. So that was my contribution going up to Connecticut and then bringing it to Ron, and, and then he would uh, put uh, some of this in the newsletter that came out. Well, I would say we, we did like four newsletters a year, something like that. Actually, he did the newsletters. Ron was pretty much... 98% of this whole production, let me say that. I say we, we as a team, we would all be scarring around and, and, and doing little pieces, pieces of research, but Ron was constantly on the phone or in the early days writing letters or sending out things to people. Besides these countless Vitaphone shorts, and there, I don't know how many were saved, but there are enough of them that TCM did 24 hours of them once. Yeah. Um, there's also some features, and I mean, there were both late silence with musical soundtracks and sound films, talkies with uh, the films on disc, and obviously that just adds the complication. If if something is seven reels long, you have to find seven reels and seven discs to to get it back together. Yeah. Well, I'm, you know, unfortunately, there's quite a few films out there that have either missing reels of film or missing discs. So, you know, they, sometimes you show things like that, uh, like, well, what is it, uh, the original Good News. I mean, the, the MGM, which is not Vitaphone, of course, but, you know, we, <laughs> there's no ending to it. You know, we, what yeah. happened to, to the rest of it? Um, but people will say, okay, I'll see what you got, you know. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> we're, so, we're so anxious to see this. Um, so there's... There's been a lot of um, uh, uh, restoration. You know, when when Ron would find someone in, in England or Australia, or um, a private collector, or he, he he found two, I'd say, big collections of discs uh, from this family in Connecticut, another family in Connecticut, that they owned a, a theater uh, many many years ago in the in the twenties and thirties, and they just happened to have these discs. And um, he took pictures. They had them all out on their dining room table. <laughs> it's amazing. It's amazing. The dining room table didn't coll collapse. But 
through the, that, you know, the, he was able to get uh, quite a few missing elements um, for for films that were mute. And, and you know, it's a shame that you know there's 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 there's, there's a Vitaphone short of the young Buddy Rich, uh, the drummer who became this jazz drummer when he was a real small child. Um, the soundtrack disc exists, but the film doesn't exist. Um, he was in touch with, um, oh man, who's the the gentleman, the Velvet Fog? Oh, Mel Torme. <laughs> Mel Torme, yeah, Mel Torme. And just about all his waking hours was trying to find that film because he was a big Buddy Rich fan. And they never, we never found it. You know, they never found it. Um, so we just got to keep digging and, um, uh, uh, hopefully, um, someone will be looking in an attic or a barn or a garage sale you know, for, for a reel of film or a, or a giant disc, and and it might be something that that can be useful. Yeah. Um, do you know at this point? I mean, I know it's it's just shortly after the news about Ron. Um, yeah. Do you know anything about plans to continue the Vitaphone project? Have you talked to other people involved with it or anything like that? Well, it was one of the things that was talked about at his memorial service, which was quite a quite a n- nice memorial service, as memorial services go. It was very heartfelt, and, and there was a lot of Vitaphone music being played. It was piped in, uh, along with the flowers, you know, all the bouquets that were there, um, and all the people that came had a lot of love, but we talked, you know, what will happen. And we know that Ron had set up this, uh, website, which they now call Ron Hutchinson's Vitaphone, uh, site. And it's a forum that still people will, uh, ask questions. We all chime in, uh, and, and maybe discoveries. Someone found something. Um, uh, Ron's widow uh, still, of course, has all the stuff, and uh, you know it was it was kind of too soon to really say where it's going to go. Hopefully, I'd I'd like it to see you know to get to some bigger place like maybe the Library of Congress um, and Culpeper, something like that, where they're set up to keep these things uh, preserved and uh, providing that people can access this and hear it and see this stuff you know that's the fear that we all have of materials getting into some i don't know collection uh that has these ironclad right uh, rules about uh, no you can't see this you can't hear it like why (laughs) (laughs) you know it's what's that doing it just keeping in a box or a film can so that's my thoughts on it, but I don't think there's anyone really to, to step into Ron's shoes at at this at this point, or, or can, for that matter. He was uh, just uh, so committed, and and it was, but it was love for him. It wasn't work. It was uh, I don't know <laughs> more than a hobby. It was like eating ice cream. He said, you know, something <laughs> like that. <laughs> yeah, it was a, quite a unique man. He just made so many people happy by getting uh, either soundtracks or uh, films to to family members who appeared on in some of these films um, um i know i i can relate one story real quick uh, there was um, 
I met the widow of a man who did a lot of work for the Fleischer cartoons. Uh, Sammy Timberg was his name. He wrote the Betty Boop theme song. I met his daughter first. And she says, my mom's out in Los Angeles. So I was out there, and I got a chance to meet her and talk with her. And uh, um, she was a, a Ziegfeld girl, worked in Whoopi, worked with Eddie Cantor, uh, and then did a lot of stage work. Well, Ron found that um, MGM short with uh, Harry Rose, you know, the Frankfurter Sandwiches oh, yeah. uh, fellow, that funny <laughs> fellow. And he introduces this young lady who does a tap dance. And uh, it turns out it's the same woman that I met in Los wow. Angeles, you know, 80-some-odd years later. And then she recalled uh, working on a um, uh, a Vitaphone short, uh, Little Jack Little, the composer and pianist. And she said, uh, I did a little dance with my lady companion to the um, Ting-A-Ling. It's, it's a waltz. And... I told Ron about this. He says, I've got that short. So he transferred both the Harry Rose short and the um, uh, Little Jack Little short and made a copy and uh, we sent it to the daughter who was able to play it for her mom and and her mom was just beaming, you know, at, at the assisted living out there, uh, showing all her friends and, and family that was me back then, you know, and uh, there were countless stories like that that Ron, that Ron did for people. Um, and uh, he did it on his own nickel. Um, and that twinkle in his eye would just, uh, he would let laugh and like, yeah, they, they really liked it. Yeah, they really dug it. <laughs> and that was it, you know. I mean, wow. <laughs> that was a truly amazing person. We're going to miss him. Some bring bags of gold their ladies love to hold And jewels brighter stars above But my sweetheart's ideals Are so much higher, so much higher And here's a wife fulfill a heart's desire Every night I bring her frankfurter sandwiches, frankfurter sandwiches how my baby loves those frankfurt sandwiches, frankfurt sandwiches. I tried to win her with flowers, flowers, all kinds of sweetness, till I found out my baby's weakness. Every night she whispers, thanks for sandwiches, thanks for sandwiches. But I... To the memory of Ron Hutchinson, 1951 to 2019. When we watch silent comedies, we see a quaint world of men in vests and straw hats, rickety old model tees, and long demolished Victorian brick buildings. But that isn't what they saw in 1916 or 1921. What they saw was the future. Los Angeles, city of the future. Endless sunshine and wide open streets and orange groves and oil derricks. A place where you went to reinvent yourself, maybe as a star. 
John Bankson is a film historian who has carved out a niche at the intersection of movie history and urban history by looking deeply into old movies to see the city they captured accidentally. He's published three books, Silent Echoes, Discovering Early Hollywood Through the Films of Buster Keaton, Silent Traces, about Charlie Chaplin, and Silent Visions, about Harold Lloyd. They document in astonishing detail exactly where the great comedian's movies were made, and thus, how they were made. This work continues at his site, SilentLocations.com, one of the great movie-related rabbit holes on the internet. I started by asking John Bankson how he got his start doing research into exactly where the movies were made. Well, I've always enjoyed silent comedies, and I also just enjoy the history that's present in old photographs. And uh, when when the Keaton films came out on video in 1995, um, I noticed that they filmed a chase scene from Daydreams in North Beach in San Francisco, near where I used to live. And so just on a whim, I decided I'd see if I could find those locations. Um, I actually had to freeze frame my laser disc player and take 35 millimeter photographs of my television set and take the film to the drugstore and have it developed. And then when I got the prints back, uh, I went to San Francisco and walked around and I found all the locations in just about an hour. And uh, a few months later, I had a chance to go to Los Angeles and I went to the library and looked a few things up and it just sort of snowballed from, from that humble beginning. Tell me about the methodology of doing this. How do you track down a location that might only be seen on screen for a few seconds? Well, I, I am not an expert on crossword puzzles, but I think what I do is similar in that uh, the more and more you do it, uh, the more clues and tricks you pick up along the way, and the more things you start to notice, and the more little odd locations or weird window patterns that you are aware of, the more you start noticing them in other films. And it's just sort of a, a process. It, it sort of builds on itself. Um, one thing that I really enjoy when I find a location, aside from just knowing, oh, that's where it was filmed, it's now a resource that might help me identify something else. Um, so it, it's just sort of a, a process that keeps building on itself. Yeah, it's particularly interesting to me how you find the same buildings recurring in different films. I mean, there's a great example on your blog of uh, you found that the hotel that Buster Keaton stayed in in the general in Cottage Grove, Oregon, is visible in Animal House. I mean, you know, talk about two very different eras of comedy, you know, united by one location. Yeah. Is it Ivan Reitman who directed Animal House? John Landis. John Landis. I met him very, very briefly and was so starstruck and tongue-tied, I didn't even think to mention to him that uh, The General was also filmed where he filmed Animal House, but lost, lost opportunity. Tell me what kind of tools or references you typically use. I mean, you mentioned in the books fire insurance maps, which I know are used by a lot of historians of urban areas. And I'm sure there's a lot of those kind of things that you can use to help track locations down. Yeah, there, there are a number of uh, very helpful resources. Uh, when I first started out, nothing was online. I, I, had to, I had to go down to the Los Angeles Library. I live in the Bay Area. I had to go down to the Los Angeles Library and pull down old phone books or whatever. Uh, and likewise, uh, there are these Sanborn fire insurance maps. And when I first started doing the work, they were only available on microfilm at the map room at the UC Berkeley Library. Um, 
So it took a great deal of effort to access these materials. And now they're all available online. But, but very simply, there's uh, the Sanborn Fire Insurance Company uh, mapped the footprints of every city in the country. And the reason for this was that this tool helped them set fire insurance rates. If they knew a large wooden house was next to a dynamite factory, they would charge them more <laughs> for their insurance. Um, and then there, there were some atlases for Los Angeles that have sort of a broader view. As I mentioned, the, the city directories, as they were called then, the phone books, you can now search online at the library. And another remarkable research tool that's become available is that for almost all of Los Angeles, you can find an aerial photograph. It's not like a satellite view looking straight down, but between, say, 1928 and 1935, there's not really any part of Los Angeles that isn't photographed straight down in some fashion. This is available for the UC Santa Barbara uh, archives. And so when you get a hunch about something, you know, if, if, if Buster filmed at this corner, then Harold might have filmed at that corner if there's a gas station on that corner. Um, you can go to the maps, you can go to the aerial photographs and say, yep, there is a gas station on that corner. That must have been where Harold filmed. So it's, uh, it's really gotten pretty sophisticated. Well, I know when you have business signage in the background, I mean, that's fairly straightforward to track down. Uh, you, you mentioned in one of the books, there's one where you could read Weebergar, and you figured out that that was West Burbank Garage. So that you can just like look that up in a directory. But how do you find a location when it's not that clear? Well, I mean, one thing that was fun is that, uh, you know, there's this alley in Hollywood where uh, bus, I, I call it the Chaplin Keaton Lloyd Alley. Uh, and it's where Chaplin uh, filmed uh, the scene in The Kid where he discovers the abandoned infant. And it also is the back of the department store where Harold Lloyd filmed Safety Last. And then the alley on the end is where Buster in Cops, he runs out of an alley and grabs a passing car one-handed he flies out of frame. And I didn't realize that they were connected, that they were all filmed at the same alley. Uh, but a few years ago, a movie came out that the San Francisco Silent Film Festival helped to restore called The Last Edition. And it turns out that this alley was very a very popular filming location. So it, it ended up showing up in a lot of films. But The Last Edition was sort of the Rosetta Stone because it had it had... It had camera angles from different points of view that weren't in the Chaplin, Keaton, and Lloyd films. But by putting that in the middle, it tied all the other scenes together. And what's been really fun is now the new uh, Women Pioneers uh, set that just came out. Uh, it turns out that several early female uh, filmmakers filmed at this same alley several years before Buster, uh, Charlie, and Harold filmed there. And... It, in some ways, it kind of makes sense. <clears throat> you know, we think of Hollywood as being really built up and overdeveloped, but especially in the teens, in you know, 1916, 1918, it really didn't have that many commercial buildings. And so this alley, which was off of Hollywood and Coenga, was literally one of the few alleys in all of town. And it was just a couple blocks from the Lasky studio. The Universal was, you know, a few, not too far away to the north. So it kind of makes sense out of necessity that they filmed here. And one thing that is seemingly becoming more and more apparent to me is that I think these locations were just commonly understood. I think the filmmakers and the, and the cameramen and whatever, 
they, I think they sort of commonly understood that we have this variety of locations to choose from. If we want this kind of shot, we go here. If we want this kind of shot, we go there. Um, and so when I find a location is used again and again, I no longer find that surprising. It, instead, it sort of confirms what I think was actually probably commonly understood at the time. There's one you talk about, I think it's the Jewett Mansion. Um, you know, and it just keeps turning up. It's in, it's in Buster Keaton. It's Margaret Dumont's estate in Duck Soup. Uh, and it keeps on going all the way up to like Dynasty in the 80s. Yeah, it's the, the Jewett Estate. It's on, I think, 1201 Arden Road in Pasadena. And I just found some, recently found some 1905 photographs of it when it was first built. It's a, it's a wonderful mansion. It's a wonderful estate. But in the opening scene from Cops, when, when you think, when Buster is talking to his, uh, Virginia Fox through the gates of this of her mansion, uh, that gate was the gate of the Jewett estate. And uh, there's a Betty Davis movie where Betty drives through that same gate. It, it's in a Ginger, Fair, uh, Ginger uh, Rogers movie. Um, it's in Children of Divorce with Clara Bow and uh, Gary, uh, Gary Cooper. It's in many, many early films. Uh, but interestingly, I think uh, Keaton filming there in 1921 is so far the earliest uh, use that I found of it. And then it's also in many uh, later film noir movies. And, and now it's famous today because that's where uh, in Dynasty, the women had the cat fight in the, uh, in the, uh, the fountain. But <laughs> it's just, it's remarkable. The house is still there. It's, it's relatively unchanged. But I don't think, I don't even think it's possible to, to verify how many films were, were shot there. But clearly by the mid-1930s, there had been a couple of dozen easily. Well, and you mentioned this really interesting thing, too, which is that there was a charity set up called the Assistance League Film Location Bureau. And they would connect the studios with rich people who had these houses. And then the fee for using the house would go to the charity for their, their works. I'm kind of impressed with L.A. society back then that they were that forward thinking about letting the studios use their their estates and the money would then go to a good cause. Yeah, it, it was a great concept. Uh, in order to raise money for charity, they had this directory of film locations, you know, mansions and gardens. But and apparently it covered, uh, you know, even like Carmel up up in Northern California. And the frustrating thing is, I, I have found very little about this organization. It showed up in a couple of LA Times articles, but I really know next to nothing about it. But it must have been, you know, if you could only find the records, you know, there would be writ written documentation of film after film after film and where they were shot. Well, there's something else for you to track down. Um, let's talk about it. you have You have the three books, one each on Chaplin, Keaton, and Lloyd. Uh, let's start with the earliest films. One of the things I certainly noticed when David Shepard's set of Chaplin's Keystone comedies came out was how much they used Echo Park. I mean, that was pretty much all they did. They'd go out the door and start shooting slapstick in Echo Park, which to me kind of drives home how home movie-ish movie production was then. I mean, I'm one of those kids who made movies with my friends in junior high, and it was, it was kind of the same thing. You know, you just grabbed your friends and start clowning around in the sunshine. Yeah, well, Echo Park was only a few blocks south of the Keystone Studio, and uh, so it made sense that they went there frequently. There were trolley lines around the park. Uh, there was also a bridge. There's, it's, the bridge is still there. There's a little island in the north end of the park. Um, 
And so, you know, there, there's a movie, several scenes of like Roscoe Arbuckle running over that bridge. It shows up in the back of some Chaplin films. Um, it's closed off now, so the public can't use that bridge anymore. Um, one thing that's funny, I, I, I had a chance to visit the LA City Archives, and in 1917, there's a letter to the city from the Keystone Studio begging and pleading, can you please let us return to filming at Echo Park? It's such a beautiful park, and we, we were such a big booster for the local economy. Uh, please let us film there. And they replied, you know, that the film crew just did too much damage to the flowers and the lawns and whatever, and they, they turned them down. Well, and as you show, they seem to shoot a lot in that same area. I mean, at least to me, it feels like the same houses show up again and again in those shorts. They were clearly not particularly concerned about repeating locations or technical perfection in any sense. There was a, a house immediately next door to the Keystone studio, due north, and it appears behind Charlie Chaplin in his, the very first scene of his very first movie, uh, Making a Living. Uh, and I found it in at least 11 or 12 other Keystone films. And my, my research is limited to my access to these films on DVD. I, I don't have a private collection of films, so I, I have to rely on the, uh, the kindness and generosity of, of the people who put the films out for uh, people like me to enjoy. Uh, but it, it's, again, it's not surprising. This, I, and, they, and the Keystone studio probably purchased the house at some point. But when they needed a front porch, why not use the one right next door to the, to the gate? Um, so it's, it's amazing. It's in, it's in at least a dozen uh, films that I've identified. And, an, an, and, another, and another charming thing about their not being concerned with perfection is that you can often see uh, bystanders reflected in the windows. And it's just fun, you know, they're, they're, they're crowded around and they're watching Charlie film. And uh, it's just a, it's a wonderful little slice of history and we can all kind of share in it together. Let's talk about that a little. I mean, wh what was the attitude of passersby or city officials or whoever to all this production going on around them? Did they just like think it was fun? Did they take it in stride? You know, the, the interesting thing is, I, I haven't set out, I, I haven't set out to say, I'm going to spend 100 hours researching the process of getting permits to film on location. I've, I've done no direct research into how the process was set up or evolved or what, was, what it entailed. But I also know that having done this other research for 20, over 20 years now, nothing has fallen onto my plate. Um, so however it was documented or whatever, it, it's pretty deeply buried because I, I honestly don't know how they went about it, how informal or formal it was. Um, there are a lot of movies where you can see a block or two down the street, you know, traffic is stopped. So they must have had a cop, you know, hold the traffic back, whether they had to apply and get a permit to do that, or they just brought a cop along with them and paid them five bucks extra. I, I honestly don't know. And I think it's kind of interesting that after doing this for so long, I don't know how this process worked in the early years. But it, my sense is it was very informal. Yeah, at some point, the absence of evidence starts to look like it was pretty much done under the table. I was wondering about that with so many of the gags around trains, too. I, like the, the, There's the bit in Cops, I think, where Keaton is about to fight some guys. He like tears off his jacket and throws it down. 
and then a train just cuts him off from them and he can get away I can't imagine that they actually hired a train for that. I think they just knew that the 1215 went by, and if they were in the right place at the right time, they could shoot this gag. That was actually in The Goat. Um, the Goat, yeah. yeah. But yeah, well, what what I didn't realize at the time, that was filmed on Alameda Street, and all of the all of the rail lines went up and down this street. The, the, the main rail line was literally in the center of Alameda. And so there was train traffic there all the time. Uh, so, yeah, Buster, I'm sure he didn't have to schedule anything. Um, <laughs> you know, another location that was interesting to me, you mentioned that Chaplin shot the tramp, which has that first iconic shot of the tramp walking away down the road in Niles, California, which is where Bronco Billy Anderson made so many films. And again, you know, you... Anderson's company probably knew where everything was. You want to walk down a bend in the road? You know, well, here's the bend in the road that we use. Yeah, that, that's exactly the case. Uh, the Niles Film Museum has released a DVD with, uh, I don't know, 15 or so uh, Bronco Billy Anderson uh, movies. And the, the, closing, the, open, the opening and closing scenes of The Tramp, you know, especially the closing shot where Charlie, Charlie you know, strolls off into the sunset and it fades out that was that was where bronco billy filmed you know five or six scenes for different movies and so like you said it was here's our bend in the road this is what we use when we need a bend in the road here's the spot we use and so that's the spot chaplin used it all makes perfect it makes perfect sense I thought the Harold Lloyd book was really interesting. I mean, in some ways, he was the most meticulous engineer of silent comedy in that era. And that extended to how he used locations. I mean, I'm sure we'll get to Safety Last in a minute. But first, I wanted to ask you about a house he used in Haunted Spooks called the Bradbury Mansion. That's kind of the perfect old, dark Victorian house in Los Angeles. Right. Well, the Bradbury Mansion uh, was on top of Court Hill, if I could, if I could return to Los Angeles in the in the silent film era and visit one spot, I would visit Court Hill. It's where Harold Lloyd and Hal Roach began their film career. It was this hill hilltop that looked down on the Civic Center, and it had this unique twin bore tunnel running underneath it. It had its own incline railway. Los Angeles had two incline railways. Angels Flight it still has, but Court Hill had its own incline railway. And then on the top of it. Uh, on top of it was this incredible Bradbury mansion. And by 1915, uh, it wasn't such a snazzy elite neighborhood to live in anymore. The wealthy people were moving out to the suburbs. So they used this incredible mansion as an artist studio and a film studio. And that's where Lloyd and uh, Roach began their careers. And they filmed several dozen movies there. In fact, Charlie Chaplin made an SNA comedy work at this mansion. And what's frustrating is that the the front steps of the mansion show up in a couple of Lloyd films, and it shows up in the Chaplin's film work. But you you go, why don't you tilt the camera up and let us see this incredible mansion in the background? And and in, in, in for Haunted Spooks, they actually used the front of the mansion, but they wanted it set in the south, so they actually built fake uh, southern columns. On the porch of this mansion, the mansion would have been far more scarier if they just left it looking at the way it really was. Well, did he use it in anything besides Haunted Spooks? 
he filmed, I, I don't know the number, but he filmed 30, 60. He, he filmed a large number of Lonesome Luke and Willie Work films from the Bradbury Mansion. And unfortunately, most of them are lost. If I could re recover, I mean, this is for selfish reasons. If if those uh, lost Harold Lloyd films could could somehow be restored, aside from the entertainment value and the historic value of seeing Lloyd develop his character and his comedy, uh, the few that I have seen, they filmed not only up there in the mansion, but the, the, the old civic center of downtown was just two blocks away. And so you'll see a random shot of the jail that was torn down or the Hall of Records that was torn down. Um, there are just so many intriguing uh, downtown locations that have just been scrubbed clean off the face of the earth, but they were recorded in these early films. And um, oftentimes the only photographic record we have of these locations are their appearances in films like with Harold Lloyd. Now, Court Hill is also where Lloyd got the inspiration for his thrill comedies. Tell me about that. Not only was Court Hill famous for where Hal Roach and Lloyd started their career, but it, it had a tunnel running through it, and there was this terrace looking south down Hill Street, and they somehow figured out that if you film somebody standing on the terrace but cut the terrace off from view of the camera, it looked like they were floating 10 stories up in the air. So they very quickly realized you could build a one-story set, like a window ledge, put it next to the terrace, and film some climbing around the outside of the window, and it would look like they were 10 stories up in the air. And so Harold used that for three different films. Um, I've seen that technique used in Larry Seaman films and uh, uh, Monty Banks films. It was a it was a very ingenious effect, and I've seen it at least. Uh, probably in 20 different films now. And the thing that strikes me about this, this special effect, there's no camera trickery involved. There's no computer graphics. The reason why it works is that the person is literally as high in the air as he appears to be. And I've always wondered why people don't use this special effect today. It's, it's safe, it doesn't cost anything, and it's real. I've seen you know examples of this maybe in like 20 different films, but Lloyd, like you mentioned, he was really meticulous, and his films were so well constructed and so well thought out and planned. And in his thrill comedies, climbing up the sides of these buildings, uh, nobody nobody came close to topping him uh, for those effects. You know, we're hearing audio without pictures. Maybe you should explain a little how that effect worked exactly. Well, the uh, the way that the, the effect worked is that you it was you would use forced perspective and you had to have a camera tower you the, the effect would work you would build a, a false set you know like a, a one-story or two-story set on the rooftop of increasingly taller buildings and so that's how you that's how they conveyed that he was getting higher up in the air is that they would build sets on taller buildings but the way the the effect worked is you had to have a camera tower and the camera tower had to be higher than the actor. And so the camera tower would look down across the face of the set at the actor hanging onto the set, but it would cut off the roof of the building that they were on. So you would get the set, the actor hanging out the window and the street far below, uh, but you wouldn't see the, the rooftop that everybody was standing on. And so that was, that was the effect and for safety last, they just went up, they filmed on increasingly taller buildings. Um, 
And except for the except for the earliest stage of the climb, the two-story building that they that they used at the beginning, all the other buildings that are used for safety last and feet first are all still standing. I've I've had the rare privilege of being on the roof where they filmed the clock scene from Safety Last. I've actually been up there, I think, five or six times now. Um, I had a chance to lead some walking tours for the Los Angeles Conservancy, and the owners are very nice. They're actually Harold Lloyd fans. They didn't realize when they bought the building that this was the building that Harold used for the clock scene from Safety Last. And then someone got him a copy of my book. Um, but it's it's really something to go up there on the roof. Um, I I can't convey how much uh, admiration and respect I have for Harold. Um, he only had one complete hand, and he had, he was filming Safety Last wearing a suit and tie in August. And it's when you stand up on the roof, there's no shade. You're just you're in the full blast sun. It's really hot, and you're aware that you are not very far from the side of a building. And, you know, you'd have to, you'd have to try really hard to trip and fall over, but you're, you're always keenly aware that I ought to pay attention. Um, I shouldn't just uh, walk around looking at my phone uh, because, you know, you could, you could get injured. And he did that. I, anyway, I'm incredibly impressed. And I'm also incredibly impressed with Lloyd because he did it again for feet first. He used the same technique for filming feet first. And when he made feet first, he already had the Green Acres mansion. He was also one of the wealthiest men in Hollywood. You know, he didn't, he didn't need to climb around on a building, you know, 10 feet from the edge of a drop to the street. He didn't need to do those kinds of things anymore, but he did because he was a filmmaker and he wanted the films to be the best they could be. So even then, he, he, he gave it his all. And I, I really admire him for doing that. Even on the first location, you notice how well-placed the stone blocks of the building are for his climbing them. It's kind of like how, it's kind of like how if Douglas Fairbanks was going to jump over a table, they'd find out how high he could jump, and then they'd cut the table to fit it. The stones on that building are spaced just right for Harold to be able to clamber up two stories convincingly. You know, though even there, it's not like he's not doing something pretty risky. Oh, exactly. Um, and one thing that's interesting, um, when he was filming Safety Last, he was very secretive. As far as we're aware, they didn't take any behind-the-scenes photographs showing the sets that they used during Safety Last. They did, they did take similar photos when they were filming Feet First, um, so obviously they used the same effect, but especially during the clock sequence, I had to I had to create a, a vertical image. I stitched together different movie frames to sort of give you the full height of the set, but the clock is only like halfway up the set. There's a good full story of this set above the clock, so it was a good, you know, it was almost a two-story set, tall set that they built on top of this roof, and. In the in the in the uh, in the comparable photo for when they were filming Feet First, there was a little platform below and a mattress. But, but Harold could have fallen, you know, eight ten feet, and he would have landed on a mattress. 
So this is one sequence where a lot of the buildings have clear signage. I mean, you can see Western Costume, which they later use as the building top at one point, and the Blackstone Theater, and so on. I assume that's how you basically piece together where the locations were? Exactly. And also the uh, the, the street, there's a, a Y in the road. The Broadway splits into Broadway and Broadway Place, and there's a Y-shaped trolley intersection in the background. Anyway, you, you use all the clues that you can to, to track things down. And then he actually used a human fly, as they called them back then, for, for the long shots of climbing. He actually went by the, uh, the human spider, uh, but his name was Bill, his name was Bill Struther. And uh, during the war, he went around climbing buildings to raise money for victory war bonds. And uh, he happened to be climbing a building in downtown LA and Harold saw him filming and Harold Harold freaked out. He he had to Harold had to run around the corner because he couldn't stand to watch. And Harold would keep he'd keep peeking around the corner. You know, did he make the next floor? And that's and that's when Harold had this brilliant idea that if if Harold himself was so tied up in knots over what this person was doing, how how would that affect movie audiences? So I signed him up right away. One of the funny things I, I found newspaper clippings and whatever. And shortly before they started filming Safety Last, Bill Struther was climbing. He fell one story. He fell one story and apparently broke his ankle. And so during Safety Last, he has a limp. And so they give, they give him the name Limpy Bill uh, as his name. Uh, and one thing that was really fun uh, earlier in Safety Last, Bill Struther climbs a four-story apartment building. And... That was one of my holy grails. Um, this building had so many clues. Um, there were built, there were business signs off to one side. It was on an alley. It was on a trolley line. Um, there were so many clues, and I couldn't, for the life of me, find it. Um, it was just sometimes things don't work out. Uh, but a reader I, of my blog contacted me and said, "I, I think I found where it is," and he was right. So. <laughs> It's always, it always helps to crowdsource. Let's jump to the bigger questions here now. I mean, obviously, it's fun to figure out where things were shot. It's fun to see what these locations look like now. But what does it tell us? Is there something bigger about how film production worked then that you learned from documenting where these things happened? Oh, absolutely. I mean, one of the most gratifying things to me is when I first started out, I was just, if I could find a location, you know, that was thrilling. It's like, wow, I found it. Um, but I reached a certain tipping point where I'd found enough locations and enough other related information where the pieces all started to fit together. And to me, what's so remarkable is that Los Angeles was literally the most photographed city in the world, um, especially with silent movies. They didn't have to worry about sound equipment there weren't uh, union rules and you didn't have to have the uh the, the you know the white the dressing room wagons and whatever um it was you know pretty laissez-faire and um and filming on location was often easier than especially if you're an independent studio and you didn't have money to build sets so and, and also for comedies you know going on real streets so it's amazing how well documented los angeles was in these films but they were just fleeting glimpses on the screen. And it wasn't until you, you had DVD technology where you could grab frames 
of different movies and put them side by side and see how the pieces fit together. But it all kind of started to coming together. And, and as I said, I've I become aware of these other resources like these aerial photographs from 1928. Um, but to, to, to me, I have a very clear image through these films of just what Los Angeles and Hollywood looked like in the 1920s. And one thing that's surprising, especially if you're familiar with Los Angeles today, is that there were so many wide open spaces. There was downtown, there was Hollywood, there was like Culver City and Santa Monica. But in between these places, there were wide open fields. There were oil derricks. There were, you know, it's, it's hard to comprehend how sparsely populated and how sparsely developed Los Angeles was, especially in the late teens and early 20s. And so one reason why they, they would film at certain places so often is there just weren't other places for them to go. Uh, and in particular, I mean, it was a new city growing up before our eyes in the movies. And it was a small town, certainly a small town for those comedians who all knew each other and shared those locations. You know, Harold Lloyd filmed on Bunker Hill, on this one corner of Bunker Hill. He filmed at this one corner more than any other spot in town. It just somehow it had the right variables that suited his needs. Uh, there was a there was a skid row area uh, east of downtown where Buster filmed more scenes than any other spot. Like I said, I, I enjoy looking at vintage historic photographs of Los Angeles uh, of these sites. And so the movies kind of help bring these photographs to life. And then in particular, the location like the original Chinatown, you know, Charlie Chaplin filmed there, you know, Buster Keaton filmed there. It was a very popular place to film and it was torn down. The, the, the Chinese locals were, were booted out, they were evicted and they ultimately tore it down to build the Union train station. And for some reason they documented Chinatown photographically in great detail uh, before they tore it down. And so there are literally dozens of photographs of Chinatown. And so when I look at these photos, I say, yeah, Charlie and Jackie Coogan filmed the kid on this corner. And, uh, you know, Charlie debates picking this drunk guy's wallet in police at this corner. And Stan Laurel f filmed here. And anyway, it's there's something there's something about having that extra connection of looking at these photographs of these lost locations, but also having them tied into movies and knowing that Chaplin and Stan Laurel, whatever, filmed there, it just, to me, it makes it very satisfying. And it, it just makes it easier for me to kind of imagine how everything looked at the time. So it's sort of, it's sort of like time travel. I like to talk about, there's the block of Cahuenga south of Hollywood Boulevard. I've found, I think at least 40 different movies that were filmed on this one block. And Buster, Buster filmed eight different movies on this one block. And it was only a few blocks from his studio. And it, it's just like I said, at the time, it wasn't like he had dozens of different choices. Uh, but if, you got a, if you're familiar with it, you filmed there before, it's a few blocks away, you go back there again. Um, and so that, that's these patterns. This, these are the things that weren't originally uh, apparent to me when I first started, but realizing that on this one block, Buster filmed eight different movies. You know, it, it tells you something about his, about how he made his movies, his working methods. 
And that's just some just something we, we didn't know beforehand. I, I'd like to share something. I, I didn't realize this originally, but his movie Cops has no interior scenes. The entire movie is filmed outdoors and unbelievably, um, I have I've now identified every shot in the movie. Um, and it's it's crazy how how meticulous they had to plan this, and they filmed all over. They filmed all over Hollywood, all over uh, Los Angeles by the you know by the Skid Road, uh, way down south of Los Angeles, out at USC, um, out in Pasadena. Um, it took a lot of effort. They had to go to many many different spots to grab all the shots for this film, and. I, I, there's another resource I hadn't mentioned before, but the the uh, city of Los Angeles now has their historic building permits online, and so the Keaton Studio, Charlie Chaplin made his mutual films at the at the small studio that Buster Keaton late, later took over, and it wasn't until 1921 that they closed over the shooting stage. So when Buster Keaton was filming the Goat, the the shooting stages were still open to the air, but I found the permit for when they built the shooting stage at uh, at the Keaton studio, and it was while he was making Cops. And you almost have to wonder if one reason why Cops has no interior scenes is to give the carpenters free reign to build the uh, the enclosed shooting stage. Yeah, no, I'm sure that's true. And and for Cops, he used uh, three different studios. Um, that what's wonderful about these uh, historic aerial photographs. The teeter-totter fence scene, that was at the Brunton studio. You can see where this, you can see the fence where they put the ladder um, for that shot. And when he runs through the arch uh, with all the cops chasing him, that was the Goldwyn studio. And then the, the scene where the, uh, the grandstand collapses and the fire hydrant goes off, that was the Metro studio just across the street from his own studio. Um, so again, it's interesting that he filmed that he filmed this movie at three different other studios. One thing I was thinking, you know, movies kind of went indoors when sound came in, and it really took till after World War II to get them back out on this on location and out on the streets again. You know, we think of this in particular in regards to film noir in the post-war area. You know, I always think of this from movies that start with the narrator who calls it Los Angeles. You know, apparently that pronunciation wasn't nailed down yet. Um, anyway, do you run across a lot of the the locations from silent comedy in noir too? I do. I have uh, several posts on my blog where I I comment on the intersection between Chaplin and film noir or Harold Lloyd and film noir. Uh, and what I noticed is is that a lot of what were a lot of locations that were just sort of a typical location in the twenties, if if you let it. Uh, run down for 20, 25 years with no maintenance, no maintenance or no paint or whatever. Now it's a great location for film noir. Um, so especially on Bunker Hill, where Harold Lloyd filmed so frequently, there are many locations. I haven't had a chance to write it up, but the movie M, the remake of M with... Um, David Wayne, isn't it? David Wayne, yes. Um, that was filmed primarily right around the intersection of Third and Grand, where Harold filmed so frequently. So a lot of there's a lot of overlap between Harold Lloyd films and that remake of M. Uh, I I do want to mention that uh, one thing that's been fun uh, with these new Blu-ray releases coming out is that uh, my research isn't limited just to Los Angeles. 
And, uh, for example, when, uh, when uh, It's the Old Army Game came out with W.C. Fields, uh, he filmed that in Ocala, Ocala Florida. Um, and, again, it's, it's an example of how movies are time machines, and they're, they're literally a historic record. Um, but you can see from the post that I did and some aerial photographs and whatever, how Louise Brooks and W.C. Fields filmed this movie on location in Florida. And, you know, they, they were very efficient. They only filmed on one or two blocks uh, and they used them again from different angles. Um, and likewise, uh, when Roscoe Arbuckle made all of his Vitaphone shorts, um, I have a post, several posts about that, uh, but his talking Vitaphone shorts, again, the vast majority of his locations were just one or two blocks from the studio. Uh, you, need a, you need a corner grocery store, a corner drugstore. Why travel miles? Just go a block from the studio and grab your shot. And, uh, and also Astoria, where, where uh, Buster Keaton filmed some of his educational shorts. Um, so it's not just Los Angeles that's uh, preserved in the background of these movies. Uh, there are many other locations that pop up. But one thing that does seem a common theme is that uh, you always film close to the studio if you can. Well, and to, and to give an example of how new releases can lead to new discoveries, uh, you had a post on your blog about a longer version of of Buster Keaton's My Wife's Relations coming out on DVD. And it includes a gag that we hadn't seen before. I mean, a gag is really a stunt where he goes down the face of a building, one awning to the next, several stories. And you were able to immediately ID the apartment building that he, that he used. And again, the, the, the apartment building that he used was where he had filmed the goat a few months previously. Um, so it, it makes sense. This, this apartment building was on Buster's radar and uh, it was familiar to him. So, oh, let's just, we need a shot of me running out of a front porch. We'll use this apartment building here. Yeah. You know, when I think about Los Angeles in that time period, I think the first thing that comes to my mind, even before, you know, Raymond Chandler or anything, is Laurel and Hardy driving a rickety old fliver down a big white street of brand new bungalows with little baby orange trees growing in front. That's my image of vintage Hollywood. Have you ever thought about doing a Laurel and Hardy book? I have a, a great deal of information about their solo films. And those, they were, uh, especially like the ones that Hardy made with Billy West, the Chaplin impersonator. And those have a great deal of location scattered all over the place. By the time they were a team and working for the Roach Studio, they tended to film close to home. So a great many of their scenes were filmed on Main Street, just a few blocks away from the Roach Studio. I have a great deal of information about the Roach Studio films, both the silent and the early talkie films. So someday it would be wonderful to do a Laurel and Hardy, Our Gang, Charlie Chase type book. I've got, I've got enough material to do such a book, uh, but there's some things I need to work out before that could be a reality, but uh, that'd be fun to work on. So if people are in Los Angeles, or Los Angeles as we insiders call it, um, they can go around with your books, I guess, finding these locations. But are there more organized ways to go see silent comedy sites like these? There are walking tours. There are many, many tours of uh, silent era Hollywood, uh, Buster Keaton tours, uh, a, a downtown Chaplin tour, a, a safety last tour. So if people can go to my uh, to my blog, 
there are many uh, PDF tours they can download. So the next time you visit Los Angeles, uh, you might want to take a look at that and, and use it as a resource. And and the other thing I want to mention, I talked before about this alley where uh, cops and the kid and safety last were filmed. Um, we've been been working to try to get this recognized as a Los Angeles cultural monument. Um, I'm, I'm going to be giving a couple of bus tours. There's a company called Esoturic, and they lead uh, these tours around bus tours around Los Angeles where they visit literary sites or offbeat historical sites. And Richard Shave and Kim Cooper run it. Uh, and they have successfully gotten other Los Angeles landmark locations designated with a cultural monument marker. They've been running with this. And so it would be really wonderful if at some point this alley where cops and kid and safety last was filmed might get a be designated with a, uh, a an historic cultural monument marker. So we'll have to wait and see, uh, but that would really be fun to have that recognized. Thanks to my guests, Vince Giordano and John Bankson. Links for the Vitaphone project will be in the show post at nitrateville.com. And the same goes for links to John Bankson's books, Silent Echoes, Silent Traces, and Silent Visions, and to specific posts we talked about at his site, silentlocations.com. Music is by Kevin McLeod. Remember to subscribe at iTunes, Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, or Stitcher, and to leave us a rating or a review at iTunes. I'll be back in a few weeks. Thanks for listening. Finally! Finally!